0: It's privileged to open God's word uh, with you. So please do take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5 verses 6 through 11. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about a past life of mine. As I said, I love this place, but I wasn't always here. Uh, Before here, I worked at a physical therapy clinic in San Jose, California, and because I was considering physical therapy as a career. Uh, And and as I was there, I learned a lot through my time, uh, mostly that I wanted to get out of there. Uh, But but I did learn a lot about physical therapy. I was an assistant to the therapists that worked there. And a big part of my job was to help the patients perform the exercises that they were assigned as part of their recovery regimen. We were supposed to guide and help and sort of support the patients as they carried out light exercises, stretches, things like that, so they could gain back the, the, the strength that they lost from an injury or a surgery. Well, we had one patient, uh, he was an older gentleman, probably in his 60s, who was recovering from a knee surgery. He was only a few weeks into his rehab, so that means a few weeks after his surgery And he was working on recovering muscle strength in his lower body. So one of his exercises were calf raises, like up and down on your tippy toes kind of thing. Well, One day he was doing these calf raises, but his form wasn't quite right. Instead of being upright in his posture, he was leaning a little bit too far forward. Instead of his shoulders sort of being rolled backwards and his eyes looking straight ahead, he was looking down at his toes and his chest had started to move past his feet. And the next thing you know, he's on the floor. It turns out this older gentleman ended up breaking his nose from the fall, all because his posture wasn't quite right, all because his form and his stance weren't quite right, and partially because the assistants weren't doing their jobs. But we'll save that story for another time. Uh, I wasn't there actually uh, for that that instance in particular, Um, but that event resulted in long and meticulous hours for every single one of the assistants, specifically for this detail of posture adjustment, for this detail of form correction. Uh, It's important for any exercise, but specifically for people recovering from serious injuries or from serious surgeries, Slight adjustments of certain angles or or changes in distances in your feet can can be the difference between success and failure. Uh, We learned the hard way that posture can mean the difference between getting better and healing and getting stronger, or it can mean getting hurt. It can mean getting injured, sometimes even sent back to the operating room. Well, the passage today before us is one that knows the importance of posture. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 is concerned with how you are poised as a Christian, not physically, but spiritually. Peter wants to set your spiritual feet in exactly the right stance so that you won't fall. So that when the cares and the, the trials, the hardships of this world and the anxieties of this world, the attacks and the temptations from the enemy are trying to drag your soul to the ground, you can stand firm in your faith. 1 Peter 5, 6-11 through 11 teaches us that proper posture for firm faith leans entirely on God. Proper posture for firm faith leans entirely on God. You see, the context of 1 Peter is persecution. As the gospel was gaining more and more traction, the early church posed a a really serious threat to the, the culture, the structure, the ideologies of the day. And so persecution was only getting worse. It was violent. People were being ostracized from society and it could all be stopped if you gave up your faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how do you endure? How do you stand firm in your faith? Peter is speaking to Christians who are suffering and weary. They're in need of comfort. Christians whose faith feels weak, whose faith needs reinforcement and strength and help. And that's why this passage is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because this world, it's still full of suffering. It's still full of sorrow and temptation. So how do we stand firm in our faith? Read with me 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Proper posture for a firm faith leans entirely on God, and I want to show you how that works from three ways in this passage. We're going to see three postures for firm faith. And for some of you, this might just be a slight adjustment. It might just be a slight change of angle, slight change in the the distance between your feet. But for others of you, it might show that you've been doing this thing wrong the whole time. And either way, I think these three postures for firm faith have a lot to teach us and we have a lot to gain from looking at them. The first is a posture of submission, a posture of submission. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. Peter's first instruction is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is the language of submission, of being subject to or under the hand of God. And if you think about it, it's kind of an interesting command because it's not so much something that you do as much as it is something that happens to you. It is a command, but it's not exactly something you can just force yourself or will yourself to do on your own. Some translations render this command to be humbled, to to emphasize that that idea of it happening to you, not just you doing it. It's kind of like if I were to say, be scared. None of you are scared. None of you grabbed somebody's arm next to you and screamed in terror. But if you turn the corner and there was a guy in a clown mask and a chainsaw screaming at you to be scared, well then mission accomplished. You'd be terrified. And it's because something outside of you has to affect that. How do you obey the command to humble yourself or to be humbled? Well, you have to look outside of yourself. And that's why verse six says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You see, truly humble people have a mighty God. Humility isn't so much something that you do as much as it is something that you are. And you become that way by recognizing who you are before God, who you are under God's mighty hand. Now, if you're an Old Testament scholar, or if you grew up in Awana, or if you've watched the Prince of Egypt, you might recognize this phrase, the mighty hand of God. And because it's a reference to God's work in the Exodus, when God liberated his people from Egypt. Turn quickly over in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. I want to show you what I mean. Deuteronomy 26, 8 is recalling the Exodus. It's remembering in the rearview mirror this unprecedented salvation event. And Deuteronomy 6, 8 describes it by saying this. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with great deeds of terror with signs and wonders. You see the Exodus was both a gracious and a terrifying event. It was salvation and it was judgment because the Red Sea opened up to save and liberate thousands of abused and oppressed and lowly Israelites. But it also closed up to drown an army of the greatest superpower in the world. In other words, the the mighty hand of God opposed the proud, but gave grace to the humble. Turn back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Those are the words that immediately precede our passage. Look there with me, the end of verse five of 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What more reason do we need to be humble? There is no more terrifying reality than to be opposed by God. And at the same time, there is no more comforting reality than to be given grace By God's mighty hand. And to know that God has the authority and the prerogative to to give grace and judgment from the same hand should humble us. That the same hand that opened the sea for the Israelites closed it over the Egyptians. It should take us to, it should help us to take our rightful place beneath and below and under God's mighty hand. In Crossroads, that is good news because look at the end of verse six. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The way up is down. There is a proper time for exaltation, but it is not now. Exaltation is God's business. It's on God's timeline and his prerequisite is humility. This life is not the time for exaltation, because those who try to exalt themselves will be opposed by God. Now is the time for humility and submission, because that's where we find God's grace. This world is is no place for the exaltation of Christians, and it would not have been hard to convince Peter's audience of that. Because their submission to God's mighty hand meant that they accepted and trusted God's sovereignty even when it meant horrific persecution and suffering. And that's exactly where this verse is just so beautiful and so pastoral. Because this posture of humility and submission under God looks like verse seven. Look there with me. Casting. All your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is where it's so important that we let the Bible speak for itself and that we let it define our thinking because the world has this word submission totally wrong. This world has taken the idea of humility and the idea of submission and made it something it is not. What does it look like in the Bible? It looks like casting or throwing all your anxieties, not just some of them, not just the really easy ones or the really hard ones, but all your anxieties, all of your cares and fears and worries on a God who cares for you. God cares for you. God is mindful of you. He's not unaware, He's not unconcerned of your suffering the mighty God, the sovereign God of the universe has a particular concern for and affection for you. So a posture of humility is not some burdensome or degrading act. It's not some spiritualized version of self-hatred or self-disgust. It's about self-relinquishment. It's about entrusting yourself to a God who is sovereign and a God who cares. Consider Jesus' own example in 1 Peter 2. Flip just a few pages over to 1 Peter 2 and look at verse 23 with me. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Flip a page or two over to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. I think too often we think about humility as some arduous or, or painful task of just being as disgusted with ourself as possible. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Humility is the submission of your life, the, the entrusting of yourself to a faithful creator who cares about you. Submission is not degrading. Submission is dignified because it acknowledges that God cares for you. And when you cast all your anxieties all of your fears and your cares and your worries on him, you are acknowledging that he is in control and you are not. He is sovereign and and sovereignly gracious over this circumstance and you are not. I memorized 1 Peter 5, 7 as a kid and I memorized it as its own sentence. You may have too, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. But we cannot miss that, Verse 7 is building off of verse 6. It's telling you how to obey this command to humble yourself. And it looks like throwing your cares on God. So you're free to be carefree. That's what humility looks like. Listen to C.S. Lewis on humility. I love this quote. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. One pastor asks it this way, are you humble enough to be carefree? You see, worry denies and disbelieves the care of your God. Worry is serious. There is a lot at stake when it comes to anxiety. Jesus says in the parable of the soils that the cares of this world came and choked out the word and proved the hearer unfruitful. But we have the antidote to anxiety in our submission to God. In the humble entrusting of yourself and all your worries to his mighty and his caring hand. For the Christian who is suffering, the Christian who's persecuted or weary. It's a posture that allows you to be firm in your faith through the darkest of nights. It is such a gracious and a kind command to humble yourself. Well, having adjusted one foot for a more firm posture, Peter moves on to the other foot, so to speak, in verses 8 and 9. If verses 6 through 7 call for a posture of submission under God, then verses 8 through 9 call for a posture of vigilance, a posture of vigilance. And it starts with two commands in verse 8. Look there with me. It says, be sober-minded be watchful. The picture is a man on guard, his head's on a swivel, his gaze is constantly scanning back and forth to look out for danger. Uh, You can think of sober-mindedness kind of as the prerequisite for vigilance, and you can think of watchfulness as the practice of vigilance. Later in verse 9, we're going to see vigilance's product, the product of vigilance, which is resistance, but we'll get there later let's start with sober-mindedness. Uh, this call to sober-mindedness is a very common one in the New Testament. Uh, and yes, it does mean don't get drunk, uh, but it means a lot more than that because it's a call for, for clear thinking and for the Christian biblical thinking, for level-headed, clear thinking. The Apostle Paul uh, uses this command a lot as well. And in 1 Timothy 4, he pairs it with a warning about wandering away from sound doctrine and into strange myths. And that's because getting caught up in unbiblical rabbit trails and false doctrines is unclear thinking. It's uncareful, it's it's unbalanced and undiscerning. And that's what this call for sober-mindedness is warning against. It's warning against unclear and impaired thinking. So, yes, you do lose your sober-mindedness when You're intoxicated with alcohol. But you can also lose your sober-mindedness when you don't get enough sleep. You can lose your sober-mindedness when you get too worked up or hot-headed over a game or or politics or a relationship. You can lose your sober-mindedness when you're overcome with fear or anxiety or when you're alone and no one is looking and there's temptation right in front of your eyes because those are the moments when your mind is not clear, when you're not actively filtering what the world puts in front of you through the pages of scripture. And that's what this call for sober-mindedness sober mindedness is. It's a, it's a call for clear and consistent and consistently biblical thinking for the Christian. Peter adds in verse eight to be watchful, be watchful. It means be alert, be aware, be ready to act on a moment's notice, why? Because those temptations to indulge in sin are the growl of a lion seeking someone to devour. Temptations to distrust God or to give up your faith in the face of persecution is a sign that a predator is nearby and he is hungry. And if your mind isn't clear, if you can't discern the truth from the lie, if you're unaware of the danger at hand, then you are the perfect prey. See, being drunk is not good. But it is really not good if you are being hunted by a lion. Uh, Being unaware is not good. But it's really not good if you are being hunted by a lion. And that's the picture that Peter is painting for us here. Look at verse eight. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, we don't have lions around here, so uh, maybe Peter's illustration doesn't hit you as hard as it as it would have his original audience. But can you imagine what it would be like to walk out those doors behind you and stumble upon a lion? I can, kind of. I took a trip to the San Diego Zoo a few years ago with some friends. And we were walking down the sidewalk, which honestly is specifically designed for human beings. And I kid you not, we saw a cheetah being walked like a dog on a leash coming straight for us. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, I was very grateful that I could see that cheetah and that I knew that that cheetah posed a serious threat to me. I knew what that thing was capable of. I knew what it could do to me. And you could see parents sort of grabbing their, their young kids so that they wouldn't go running off to the cheetah in, in curiosity uh, because these kids don't have the knowledge or awareness about what this thing is capable of doing. And even in our case, even in, in this case at the zoo, there was a degree of safety, even if it was just a, a dog leash that I did not trust. There, it was still a somewhat controlled environment. You see, I think when, when we think lion, we think the zoo. But Peter's illustration is meant to, to bring up this, this danger of an apex predator who can kill you at will. He can kill you without breaking a sweat. And the last thing that you would want if you were around it is to not be sober and to not be aware. Because Peter calls this roaring lion your adversary. He's not just any adversary or any enemy. He's not just, you know, evil against good. It's not just the devil against Jesus or against the church. He is your adversary. He is against you. Peter says he prowls around seeking someone. He's active, in other words. He is on the hunt. Satan works in this world to promote sin and rebellion against God. Evil is no accident. This is what Pastor John was preaching this morning that we need to stand firm because there is an an enemy at work in this world. Peter says he's seeking someone to devour. The devil hunts to kill. This word is, is speaking of full consumption. It's not partial attack. It's full destruction. He wants to kill you entirely. He doesn't want you to sin just once or just twice, or just three times. He wants you to keep going down that path that leads to death. He wants you to to keep going down that path that makes it easier and easier to ignore God, easier and easier to sin. Satan desires to devour you and every sin that you indulge in is helping him accomplish his goal. And so what do we do? What do we do when we know the danger and when we can see the danger right in front of us? Verse nine, resist him, firm in your faith. This is the product of our vigilance. You know the danger, you can see the danger and this is the response. Resist him, firm in your faith. And that word faith is so important. It's so important because through that word faith, we see that the reason for a posture of submission under God is the same reason for this posture of vigilance. Because they both trust in and lean on God's hand. In verse 7, you can cast all your anxieties on God, trusting that He cares for you. And here in verse 9, you can stand firm before the devouring jaws of a lion also trusting God, trusting that he will not, he cannot let your soul be lost, trusting that even if they kill the body, they have no authority over your soul, trusting that knowing Christ far surpasses any passing or fleeting pleasure that this world has to offer. It's what the lyrics mean when they say, I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by his grace. That's what it means to resist firm in faith. And remember, we are talking about the lion here. It's the devil that we're supposed to resist. And I know that might be obvious to you but maybe that's because you aren't experiencing what Peter's audience was experiencing. As I said, the the context of this letter is persecution. There would have been people, uh, neighbors, bosses, political leaders looking to snuff out Christianity and Christians were suffering as a result. But but Peter doesn't say resist your boss or, or even resist Rome. Peter says resist the devil, because persecution is serious, suffering is serious, but sin is more serious. The command is to resist the devil. Resist sin, not suffering. We don't have to try to avoid suffering. In fact, suffering is sure. The call is to resist the devil. Even in the darkest of times for believers, the external circumstance was not the priority in Peter's mind. The priority was their faith that it would persevere, that it would be firm and steadfast. And so he calls them to this posture of vigilance, to this posture of awareness so that they can stand firm, not in their own strength, but in faith, trusting God's mighty hand. Well, Peter calls them to awareness, not only because of the danger, but also for encouragement for encouragement look at the end of or, yeah look at the end of verse 9 peter writes knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world these persecutions that we just talked about are the kinds of suffering that peter refers to here and he reminds his readers that no christian suffers alone christian suffering for the name of christ is fundamentally the same globally because our faith is fundamentally the same globally. And so if you need encouragement to persevere in faith, just look around. Think about your brothers and your sisters on other college campuses trying to be firm in their faith, engaged in the same battle. Think about UCLA and USC and Canyon and Valley, and a thousand other college campuses in this world trying to be a light in a dark place. Christians trying to represent Christ well and be bold for the gospel. Think about Christians in Ukraine. Think about Christians in in Russia and in North Korea trying to stand firm in their faith in underground churches, in prisons, and in war zones. Think about missionaries sent from this very church devoting their lives to bring the gospel to those in darkness. Turn a page or two over to 1 Peter 4 one more time and look at verse 12. 1 Peter 4.12, Pastor John referenced this this morning. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering is a shared reality for the Christian because ultimately we are sharing in one man's suffering. When our trust in God brings us hardship and as persecution only gets more severe, we have cause to rejoice Because we are linking arms with brothers and sisters across the globe, sharing in Jesus Christ's sufferings. Christ who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, but who is now glorified forever. And the promise is that after suffering a little while, we will rejoice in Christ's eternal glory. Turn back to chapter 5. The logic at the end of our passage is very similar to what we just saw in chapter four. The idea is that suffering is sure, but suffering is short. Suffering is sure, but suffering is short. So even in the most difficult moments, the Christian can have a posture of hope. That's our third point, a posture of hope. And we see that in verses 10 through 11. Let's read that together as well. First Peter 5, 10 through 11 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Sorry to burst your bubble, but Santa doesn't live in the North Pole. At least, he didn't between October of 2019 and October of 2020. Because in that year, a research vessel called the Polar Stern was fixed in the exact location of the North Pole, intentionally trapped in the ice. With its crew of around 100 scientists, the Polar Stern would spend over a year at the North Pole engaging in in study, And within that year, they would only see one single sunset and one single sunrise. Each sunset would last for three weeks, and each sunrise would last for three weeks. And after that, there would be nonstop light and nonstop darkness crew members reported changing their whole conception of time based on things like meal times and phone calls with research bases nearby because they had no other frame of reference. If they didn't have external markers, they would have no clue when it was day or when it was night because after a full month of total darkness or polar night, as they called it, which is awesome, no one in the Polar Stern would know how much time had passed if not for someone else telling them? Well, verse 10 is God telling us the time. It's it's God calibrating our clocks to his calendar. It's an external indicator to tell us the truth about the timeline of our life when we can't see it for ourselves. Because suffering, it almost never feels like just a little while, right? Right? Some of you are here today and you have been suffering for far, far longer than you ever would have thought. Some of you are going through things that you always thought could happen to someone else, but never, never to you. And when the days of grief turn to weeks and the weeks to months and months to years and, and even years to decades sometimes... You can find yourself wondering, is this thing ever going to end? Is it worth it? And I don't know what it is that you're going through or, or how difficult it's been. How long ago it seems that you saw the sun. But I do know that you can have hope. Because I know that compared to what God promises, it's only going to last a little while longer. That's what verse 10 says. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Peter is providing as stark of a contrast as possible here. You can see it in the verse. He describes the time of suffering as a little while, but the time of glory as eternal. And if that's difficult for you to believe, remember that you're in the ship. We're in that polar night and you may have lost your bearings because it's been so long since you've seen the sun. But God dwells in the heavens and the psalmist says the earth is his footstool and he is the God of all grace, Peter says in this verse. And so through this verse, the transcendent God and the God of grace is calling to us in our darkness from a better perspective. And he's saying, I know that it has been real dark. I know it's been real, real dark where you are. And I know it feels so prolonged, but it is only a little while, a little while compared to the eternal glory that I have called you to in Jesus Christ. Crossroads, one day we will see our glorified Savior with our own two eyes. And we will be transformed in the likeness of his glory forever. That is the eternal glory that awaits us in Christ. And it will make the suffering of this world feel like a nanosecond. Suffering is sure, but suffering is short. And so temporary endurance now means eternal glory later. How can we be sure? How do we know for certain? Because of verse 10. Verse 10 says, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We can be sure because our future is God's personal business. And he proved it on the cross, didn't he? God himself came down to this earth in human flesh. That's what we sang about so richly through these songs this morning. He lived a perfect life. He personally endured mocking and scorning and a Roman cross in our place. He was buried and he rose again so that if we believe in him, we would be saved. And so why would God stop there? Will he not graciously with Christ give us all things? God has taken it upon himself to personally see to it that your soul is secure forevermore, that your soul will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. Restore is a word that pictures healing. Restore is a word that pictures mending and fixing and making something whole again. And so it's God and his personal hand that will mend your broken bones and bind up your wounds and perfect you in his presence. Confirm is a word that pictures upholding or sustaining. And so it's God's hand that will personally hold you up that will personally preserve your restored and perfected state, not just for a little while, but for forever. Strengthen means exactly what it sounds like. You will never again feel the weakness of your mortality. You will never again feel your affections and your convictions waver because God himself will strengthen you. Establish pictures immovability. The picture is the laying of a foundation never to be moved again. And so God's hand will personally set your feet to enable you to stand before him in heaven and you will never slip, you will never stumble and you will never fall again. This verse is the picture of God himself planting your soul in heaven, never to be moved again. God isn't sending his assistants. He's not delegating this job to the apostles or to the prophets. Listen to Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The posture of firmness, of immovability that we so urgently and desperately fight for now is one that God himself will bring to completion we have no greater, no more sure hope that he himself will bring it to pass. That's why we can stand in any and every circumstance with hope. And because it is all the work of God, what better way to close this section than by saying, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. And Peter chooses this word dominion very very carefully he doesn't say to him be the glory or to him be the honor but he highlights this idea of god's dominion his his unbound jurisdiction his unmatched authority and power over all creation remember peter is trying to help his readers be immovable in their faith and so far it's all been about leaning on god Verses six and seven were about acknowledging God's sovereign, mighty, and caring hand to care for you better than you can care for you. Verses eight through nine were about trusting in his authoritative word to know truth from error, to identify the snares and the traps of the devil. They were about resisting in faith, trusting God's power to enable you to be firm. And verse 10 was all about God himself being our eternal hope because he has the authority over our souls. You see, ultimately verses six through 10 are true because God has complete mastery over all of creation. And so ultimately this outburst of worship that Peter has is where we've been headed this whole time. Liberation from anxiety is not an end of itself. Holiness and endurance are not ends in and of themselves. Even your salvation is not an an end in and of itself. Our comfort and, and our holiness, our salvation is for the declaration of God's unrivaled and matchless authority. And the fact that he desires to show his dominion, to make his dominion be known Through our comfort and through our perseverance and through our salvation, proves him to be such a kind, such a gracious, and saving God. Does it not make a posture of submission under him such a joy and a relief? Doesn't it make you feel safe and secure before the jaws of a devouring lion? Crossroads, this is the God that we lean on for a firm faith. Total dependence on God is our posture as Christians. And it's how your faith will weather the storm through the darkest of nights, through the worst of sufferings. It's how floods of anxieties and fears and worries and temptations are silenced. It's where we find comfort in fear, strength for the fight, and hope for eternity because the one who has dominion over this universe is our god father would you make your unrivaled dominion in this universe be honored and praised and glorified as we persevere in faith would your unmatched and unrivaled sovereignty over everything, and especially over our souls, be honored as we fight the good fight. As we, in the face of suffering and trial, temptation and sorrow, look to you for help, we look to you for comfort, and as we look to you as our ultimate and eternal hope, God, would you make your glory known, would you make your dominion known, and would you make your grace known in that dominion, your grace in that authority known to the world. God, it's in your Son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.